You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And uh, we have a couple of guests on the program today. First, uh, Darlan Chang, uh, who is an engineer who worked with ExxonMobil as an engineer. And then after a number of years, became disillusioned and um, started out uh, working in the environmental space. And would like to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Darlan. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in in the science and what led you to go to Exxon and and then what uh, disillusioned you uh, after you got there? Sure. I uh, graduated with a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2003. And uh, I was recruited by ExxonMobil in 2002. Uh, At the time, I was very concerned about the uh, dual issues of um, fossil fuels being a limited resource and uh, climate change. And uh, being from a mechanical engineering background, uh, I was very concerned about uh, whether this transition away from fossil fuels was going to happen in time and whether I was going to be able to be a part of that. So when I was recruited by ExxonMobil, I was told by my peers and by my recruiters that ExxonMobil was an energy company. Looking back on it, I can see why they said that, because uh, this is after the 80s and 90s when oil prices had gotten to brutal lows and none, not enough petroleum engineers were graduating. So they were at their most humble when they were recruiting me in 2002 uh, for the 21st century. And uh, at that time, I had the understanding that I was going to join gas facilities, work on natural gas as a bridge fuel away from fossil fuels, and eventually uh, over the course of my career help transition away from fossil fuels and uh, what what actually happened after you were there for a while what actually happened was i, I worked on a uh, liquefied natural gas for three and a half years uh, which is the uh, cryogenic cooling of natural gas until it's liquid form and then you can transport it by ship around the world and i worked on uh, uh, making natural gas processing plants and liquefied natural gas processing plants that would be all electric uh, so they wouldn't require using gas themselves, but uh, they could be driven electrically. And I worked on a research project looking at what were the energy options that ExxonMobil go into uh, back in 2006. Uh, and it ended up that uh, even though we considered things as far flung as uh, mining helium-3 from the moon to use a nuclear fusion reactors, uh, the end conclusion was it's not going to happen in the next decade or two. Uh, And I I started feeling disillusioned at that point. I I also started feeling disillusioned because of a project that I worked on myself for a liquefied natural gas storage tank. And uh, there's a flaw in it, like um, what I perceive like a Challenger accident. There there was a flaw in it that could lead lead to structural integrity issues. And I I wasn't heard by my management. My management ended up moving me off the project, punishing me in the performance rankings, and then shipping me off to another division. As luck would have it, my new division manager was receptive to my concerns. He allowed me to go talk to the senior vice president of uh, engineering at the upstream research company. And uh, when I made my case, the uh, vice president took it seriously. And uh, they were able to make sure there was a senior technical person making sure that that flaw was resolved. Uh, So I gave ExxonMobil another chance. And uh, for the second half of my career, I worked on drilling I realized that this drilling technology we were using that could increase drilling rates by 25%. It could also be used for geothermal power and renewable uh, energy. It could be used for carbon sequestration, but there was no interest among management to do this. 
Uh, same thing with the last project I worked on, reservoir engineering and simulation. We were addressing the industry-wide problem that reservoir simulations never actually predicted anything well. So we were working on how to make it actually predictive. And this could be used as well to study carbon sequestration and to make sure your reservoirs trap the carbon dioxide permanently. But again, management had no interest. And I found that the only way I could make this transition away from fossil fuels happen is on a personal level, to quit ExxonMobil and to move my family to a net zero neighborhood that uh, didn't use fossil fuels. Well, tell us a little bit uh, about the uh, CO2 sequestration uh, possibilities. I've read a little bit about that and that there are enormous potential uh, places where we could sequester carbon, say like in North Dakota and maybe in the old uh, drilling fields where in Texas and other places. Um, what, uh, what work is being done on that front and why, why do you think Exxon is not interested in doing that work? Well, the challenge is that the best geologic places to make sure that the CO2 doesn't leak after you've stored it down there are not necessarily where you're, you're going to have your plants to capture the carbon dioxide from. Ideally, you would have it right next to your coal burning plant or right next to your uh, refinery. But uh, in reality, many of the best geologic areas to do that are, are not next to where your plants are. So the challenge is um, making do with what you've got, uh, knowing uh, the risks and the geology in the local area of the plant and uh, be able to really engineer a trap that would ensure that the carbon dioxide doesn't leak out. Um, of course, all these challenges require that you have a good reservoir model that you can predict very accurately where your faults and where your traps are uh, to ensure that uh, the CO2 doesn't escape. Uh, but uh, ExxonMobil didn't have any interest in applying the technology to carbon sequestration. Rather, they just have an interest in using CO2 to uh, extract more oil and gas by just injecting it to help mobilize oil and gas. So um, how would uh, carbon <clears throat> get transferred from, say, a coal-fired plant to an area where it could be sequestered? Do we have you, any you good could, technology for that? Well, you'd be limited by your pipelines. So how, how expensive it is to uh, have a pipeline go out to the, your your underground storage, that would be the limiting factor. Um, so uh, as the distance increases, the cost will increase, and you have to find some kind of optimum of having a very good geologic trap and uh, be able to afford the pipelines that would go out there. Could we use the existing pipeline technology that we have in place to uh, to kind of use it for carbon uh, transfer to to an area where it could be sequestered? Uh, if you mean by uh, wells that have already been drilled, that have already extracted oil and gas, they may not necessarily be good CO2 traps. So that would have to be an evaluation based on the reservoir engineers and the geologists. Uh, they may have been good for trapping hydrocarbons, but um, it might not be the case for carbon dioxide. Uh, what I was actually referring to uh, with the pipelines that are in place that currently are transferring gas and oil products be good conduits for uh, carbon sequestration from, say, a coal-fired plant or, or a natural gas plant or something like that? They might be, but in general, you're not going to have oil and gas pipelines going to coal plants. 
generally coal being solid, you wouldn't need pipelines to be able to transfer the fuel there. Um, so in, in the lucky situation where you do have those pipelines, that would be the call of uh, the engineers to see whether there's any corrosion issues that could happen with uh, having CO2 go through those, those pipelines. With a different chemistry, uh, the stainless, the, the steel of the pipes might not be able to uh, last the, the lifetime of the uh, sequestration. Okay. Well, it's, it's fascinating, uh, the work that needs to be done to, to solve these problems. And I, I, one of the questions that I would ask you is, given your study of, of these issues, what are the top five things that you would be looking at that we should be focusing on uh, to, to solve our climate change problems? Well, I think the number one issue is whether we're actually displacing fossil fuel use. Because much of the renewable energy boom that's happened over the last couple of decades has not decreased the amount of emissions, has not decreased the amount of fossil fuel use. Fossil fuel use has actually increased along with renewable energy increases. Granted, renewable energy, starting from a very small base, has increased much more quickly. But fossil fuels are still increasing at a rate that uh, the renewables are not displacing them. So I would say that any technology that uh, we're evaluating this decade should be seen as a do or die thing where uh, it really has to be evaluated for whether it's displacing fossil fuels, making uh, the demand for fossil fuel less. Because over, my, over the course of my career, I, I've, uh, it, it's been driven home to me that the fossil fuels are much more limited than most people realize. And hydraulic fracturing is not a sign of strength it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign that uh, we're truly scraping the bottom of the barrel. And uh, it's in the interest of the oil and gas companies to sell all the hydrocarbon that they have. But then that means when it's really uh, about to be gone, that um, we're going to fall off a cliff in terms of fossil fuel use. Well, I guess uh, in terms of displacing uh, or when we're, we're getting new technologies that uh, create energy, such as wind and solar, uh, and, and we're continuing to wrap up fo fossil fuel usage, it seems like conservation is really what you're talking about there and, and what we can do to conserve energy because that, that is seemingly the most efficient way to uh, reduce energy in the, in the short term. Uh, we've only got about yes. a minute to, uh, to our break, but maybe you could uh, talk about that for a second. So my criteria is if a technology is really viable within this decade, which is maybe the last decade we have to truly turn this thing around, uh, it should be something that a, a good intentioned person should be able to do personally. And so for me, that was buying into an all electric neighborhood where the houses are so tightly built with such good insulation and such good efficiency that they use about 25% of the energy that a typical house uses in the U.S. Well, uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and uh, we're speaking to Tar Darlong Chang, uh, an engineer who worked with ExxonMobil for a number of years. And we'll be right back and uh, talk to Darlong some more. And you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern. And uh, back with Darlan Chang, ExxonMobil, former uh, engineer, uh, talking to us about environmental issues. Uh, this, the first thing you had talked about was um, 
the displacing of fossil fuel usage and making sure that whatever we do, we're not uh, yet using even more energy kind of that would cause us to use more fossil fuels in the process. Uh, it seems like in our ever increasing energy needs, what are some of the other top five uh, changes that you think we need to make to um, reduce our emissions? I think to reduce the uh, our, our emissions, we, we have to consider carbon capture and sequestration. There are certain um, uses of fossil fuels where uh, they can't be readily replaced. We're unfortunately at a point where we're cramming for the final exam. We, we need to, according to climate science, reduce our emissions in half by 2030, just to have a two and three chance of not tipping into irreversible climate change where it's out of human control. So it's very important to consider how we can do carbon capture and sequestration, but we need to do it with good oversight uh, because it's, it's more, more than a, uh, easy and, and profitable for the oil and gas industry to put out a bunch of pilot plans, say, oh, it didn't work out, and, and just uh, uh, we end up with no solution at the end. Um, there has to be good oversight to ensure that the best possibilities for carbon capture are actually uh, done uh, in good faith, uh, which I found throughout my career, uh, many technologies were not. They were just done for PR, but not in good faith to actually transition us away from fossil fuels. Uh, the other uh, thing that we need to explore that hasn't been explored enough is geothermal uh, for both heating and for geothermal power generation. Uh, the core of the earth is as hot as the surface of the sun. Uh, the deeper we drill, the hotter the rock. Uh, of course, uh, geothermal has been primarily used in those places where there are events, there are already hot springs, but we need to make it available to all of the world because if geothermal power was made uh, widely applicable, it could replace coal and natural gas is baseload power. Uh, for the electric grid, you need to have baseload power in order to be able to provide power on demand. And uh, without nuclear being able to get online fast enough, the next best option seems to be geothermal power. Um, geothermal heating can be done on a wider basis of heating people's homes by having geothermal loops that provide uh, uh, hot water and steam to be able to keep people's houses warm during the winter. Uh, so those applications are also something that uh, should be rapidly scaled up this decade. Do you see that happening? Uh, do you see uh, either the U.S. government or private industry or governments around the, the world uh, really making significant efforts on the geothermal front? I don't. Uh, there was a, a burst of geothermal power research that was done in the 80s and 90s, but since the 2000s, geothermal power has stagnated. And uh, there hasn't been much progress in that area. In fact, I've been trying to get into geothermal power research myself. Uh, and uh, I haven't been able to get a position because there are only 8,000 positions in the entire US for geothermal. And compare that with millions of fossil fuel jobs. Um, it's very, very hard to get in, even if you have background to be able to contribute immediately in a geothermal position. Um, so there has to be a rapid scale up and this can't happen by the market alone. Um, because there's too many advantages for the fossil fuel industry to be able to block any new entries. And the government has to step in to be able to take away the subsidies that benefit the oil and gas companies and provide uh, uh, a jumpstart to make these geothermal uh, startups work out. Do you see the Biden administration putting any energy or effort into uh, the geothermal area? 
I, I do. I've uh, interviewed with the Geothermal Technologies Office of the Department of Energy. They have great people. They're very enthusiastic, but they have very limited positions. And um, Jennifer Granholm has said many good things. She's the Department of Energy Secretary, and uh, she has been uh, very supportive of geothermal, but without uh, congressional approval for the kind of funding that would be needed to rapidly scale up geothermal, uh, it doesn't look very good right now. What about in California? Are we doing anything in California to... Uh... Yes. Uh, yes, California is one of the hot spots. You, you have some great uh, locations that are, are very close to hot rock. You don't have to drill as deep. Uh, um, you have areas that are tectonically active. So those are ideal for, uh, for doing geothermal work. And there are some startups and medium-sized companies there. Uh, I personally am not willing to move to California because I made the decision to come to Colorado for this sustainable uh, neighborhood. But I, I also think this should happen all throughout the U.S. It shouldn't just be California. It needs to be scaled up and, and made affordable and possible throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so there was three. Uh, what are areas four and five? Uh, I would say four is... Um, is a popular one, solar and wind. Solar is great for people to have it on their homes and become their own power producers. It also makes it possible to have microgrids, which is neighborhood scale grids, where you have uh, uh, some sort of storage, energy storage. It could be anything, it could be batteries, it could be hydrogen. You could use the solar power to uh, run electrolysis to make hydrogen and uh, store it uh, for use in fuel cells. Ideally, your microgrid could even work for the summer and winter seasons so that during the summer you generate much more solar power than you need and you can generate hydrogen for storage during the winter and that way you don't have to take power from the utility even during the winter. Okay and what would be item five? And, and item five I would say is wind. Offshore wind is really the most promising because you're not displacing land use uh, but uh, that's only for coastal areas and you lose a lot of power the farther that you have to transmit electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't mention nuclear. What, what are your thoughts as to uh, nuclear and what we could do? It seems as though a number of uh, top thinkers in this area think that we should be doing more nuclear. When I was back at the university, I was told by nuclear engineers that nuclear fusion was just around the corner within the next 10 to 20 years. It's been 20 years and it's not around the corner. It's still another 10 to 20 years away. And uh, we can't keep hoping that nuclear fusion is going to be our lottery ticket that gets us out of this energy crisis. It's like your family being on the verge of bankruptcy and, and buying a lottery ticket every day. We can't count on nuclear fusion. We should continue to research it. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the cure-all. The other thing that didn't work out is affordable, safe nuclear fission reactors that were modular and could be rapidly deployed. That didn't happen either. We're, we're still looking at nuclear plants taking uh, from five to 10 years in order to be commissioned. So that means we, ha we have to start them today to have any hope of uh, making a dent in the global emissions goal that we need by 2030. And do you see the Biden administration pushing on uh, rolling out new nuclear plants? No, I don't. Part of it is a policy failure and part of it is the technology did not pan out like us engineers hoped it would. Unfortunately, we don't have another couple of decades to, to keep trying to make technology affordable. I see a number of uh, articles about uh, smaller nuclear reactors that they're hoping to roll out to to kind of 
do it more quickly. Uh, how are those uh, panning out? Yeah, as, as far as I understand, there's still uh, pilot projects. There's still prototypes. Uh, and just like nuclear fusion reactors, even if by the most optimistic estimate, they get a pilot plant in 2035 that uh, generates more electricity than it uses, you still are looking at another decade to commercialize it. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I don't think is talked about enough, which was kind of uh, implied in, in one of the first things that you said was that we should be doing more conservation, essentially uh, more energy efficient appliances and, and other sorts of energy efficiencies that we could get to reduce the amount of energy that we're using rather than just focusing on the creation of more energy. Uh, where do you think we're at on that front and, and what kind of leadership do we need to see from governments or institutions to, uh, to make this move more quickly? Yes, yeah, so the technology is already mature. The uh, Asian market has really made heat pump technology very mature, uh, very affordable and very efficient. For every kilowatt hour of electricity you put into a heat pump, you can get three to five kilowatt hours of uh, heating from it. And uh, insulating houses, the passive house concept, a house built so well insulated and so tight that uh, you, you virtually never have to heat or cool it throughout the entire year. That technology has been developed in Europe and is available in the US. The problem is developers. The problem is city councils and local governments. They want to build houses as cheaply as possible as they've always done for a long time. And they don't want to adopt these new technologies that would massively reduce the amount of energy that people need to heat and cool their homes and to run their homes. Well, that's uh, definitely food for thought. Uh, well, it's great having you on the program, uh, Darlana, and I appreciate uh, you know your technological knowledge that uh, is certainly you know very extensive, and appreciate help having you share that with our listeners because knowledge is certainly power, and and we should be pushing on all these fronts to. Uh, to address the problems of climate change. And the, the more educated we are, the better uh, decisions we can make and the more we can talk to our legislators and, uh, and get changes that really are gonna make a difference enacted as quickly as possible. So thank you again for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Well, you're listening to KBC 790. This is Unite and Heal America, Matt Mattern, and uh, we'll be back in just one minute. We'll be speaking to uh, Jay Levin. This is Matt Mattern on KBC 790, your host of Unite and Heal America. We've got another guest on the program, Jay Levin. Uh, Jay, welcome to the program. Good to be here. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the uh, conversation with Chang. It was very wonderful. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, Darlana is uh, quite a knowledgeable guy. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, Jay, you've been in the media business uh, and had, had worked, uh, had, had an ownership interest in the LA Weekly and mm -hmm. were a big, uh, a big wheel there for a long period of time. And uh, eventually sold out your interest and, and went on and did a bunch of other things. But uh, while you were there, I, my understanding is you you did a number of pieces about the South Co the South Coast uh, AQMD Air Quality mm -hmm. Management District, which uh, were were important pieces 
uh, helping um, in kind of energize the community to have uh, the community take these uh, our clean air more seriously. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the work that uh, the LA Weekly did on on that front. Well, we did a lot of environmental work uh, over the years, uh, but the biggest thing we did was uh, <clears throat> we took on the fact the massive amount of smog in LA, uh, to toxic smog, huge amount of emphysema among youth and uh, communities closer to the uh, manufacturing areas. Um, and uh, uh, we didn't trust the official announcements that it was cars, et cetera. Um, our, our joke at our office, which was on Sunset Boulevard, uh, uh, was uh, the smog was so bad we couldn't see the hookers across the street. And uh, so um, I had, had background in New York before I came out here. I've done a fair, fair amount of investigative journalism. So I put together an investigative team uh, and we spent uh, some months really diving into what was happening in uh, pollution enforcement by the local AQMD. They're, the state is divided into regional AQM districts, and the state supplies them. Uh, they're responsible for cleaning up the air in their districts, and they clearly were not doing it in Los Angeles. So uh, at the end of the day, we, uh, we ended up doing 40 different articles. We took the two full issues, 20 and one issues, 20 the following week. Uh, if, by the time the first issue hit the street, uh, by 11 a.m. that day, the uh, head of enforcement for the, uh, the, the, the Los Angeles region, uh, AQMD, uh, was fired. Uh, a few months later, this, the, uh, the uh, legislative held committee meetings to uh, look into the, what we had found. Um, and they ended up uh, not only changing the law for, for and the, the rules for AQMD in Los Angeles, but for the whole state. So as soon as the new board came in under the new regulations, they fired the executive director and they really started getting down to work of cleaning up the air here, as happened around the state, where there was also um, really uh, industry-oriented, toxically-minded um, AQMD districts. So that was, a, that was a big achievement for us. Yeah, that is, it's a remarkable achievement and, and uh, kudos to you and, and your team for, for coming out with those articles because uh, certainly all of us are breathing the air here in Southern California that uh, was way too dirty and it's still too dirty, but has improved dramatically since the early 90s. For sure, uh, yeah. There's, there's still room for improvement. Uh, I, I have a bit of experience with the... the um, AQMD uh, in the case that we had against or have against Exxon Mobil and and their predecessor who's running the Torrance refinery and uh, it's remarkable how many pollutants were allowed to be emitted from these refineries. Amen. Uh, and they're they're violating <clears throat> the uh, the regs all the time. Yeah. And yet they're yep. still allowed to operate. Yep. And you're yep. like, how is this? How is this happening? And it's it's called, not into. It's called money in politics, <laughs> right? Uh, Remember, you know, all, all, our, all our elected officials, except those who take themselves off that hook, 
live and die by the money they can raise and most much of their money, uh, Democrats and Republicans. So uh, come come from industry and, um, you know, one of the other causes I've been involved with is money out of politics. And, and the surveys show that 70, between 79 and 81% of Americans wanted uh, private money taken out of politics. And there's no way you can get it to happen. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the power of that money and the amount of, even though they have to spend all that time, you know, one third to half that time raising money, uh, is uh, kind of atrocious, but it's it's got a real grip on the country. And, you know, the thing that Darlan fights against and why they can get away with murder is because they own the, they own the politics of our country in a very substantial way. Well, that's, that's very clear. I mean, it, once right. one studies the environmental situation in our country, mm-hmm. you, you recognize that it didn't make sense for our country to stay on oil and gas as our power source, uh, it made sense for oil and gas companies to have that happen. Mm-hmm. And they made billions and billions of dollars doing it, but it wasn't the right choice from a public policy standpoint. We should have been making these changes uh, 50 years ago, maybe even 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. There were other options out. The first, uh, Some of the first cars were electric back in the early 1900s, but the oil and gas industry were more powerful than the electric electric mm-hmm. industry, and they they quashed that really quickly. Right. Well, you know, the politicians are all supported by a public that like that cheap gas. Right. Right. You know, it, we're all a part of this problem, but we certainly should be demanding more from our government because uh, government regulation could rein in this industry that's kind of out of control and and give subsidies to the industries like Darlan was talking about, uh, the geothermals, the solar, the the wind, uh, because that is the way of the future. And and, uh, states is uh, like Kansas. I think it's 40% of their power from wind right now. So clearly we have the potential to have have enormous... Yeah, right on, Matt. We definitely have the potential. And then there's politics. You know, Biden can't can't get his pro- new proposals through. They're like 40, 35 to 40 percent of the way. But that's going to be another fight coming up. Um, so it's uh, it's a difficult situation for sure. Well, what do you what do you think uh, is the path forward, uh, given kind of the investigative work that you had done in the past, what are the areas that you think are, are mo- most ripe for kind of investigating and, and putting some sunlight on to, uh, to get people to wake up just like they did uh, when you wrote those articles about the AQMD? Well, uh, the, I mean, it, just in the t- context of what we've been discussing, um, much more concentration about the money being spent and who's buying, who, who's um, being influenced by the money. Um, that that's the core, and much more. Uh, you know, the Democrats have good policies and lousy communications uh, on at least better, way better policies on the on this um, without getting too bipartisan here. Um, but they don't have they don't have their act together and how to how to move forward on this really be strong with it, 
uh, make it a priority. The communication skills are sorely lacking. Um, so it's it's uh, it's the context in which we've got a lot of other problems happening in the country. Yeah. Any any particular uh, set of things that you would do, kind of on the environmental front, for the top, say the top five things that you see as uh, things we should be doing as a country? Well, I like everything Darlong said. <laughs> you know, uh, that was good. But for me, the, it's really the context of um, a really full-on public education has to happen. I don't know about five, so I've got five things, but the quality of what has to happen, the, the, the way it's impacting life. Um, I've, one of the things we did, we, uh, I founded a, uh, uh, after I left the weekly, I founded a TV network that didn't make it because they didn't roll out the digital, but we had part-time ask time. We couldn't do everything we wanted, but one of the things we, we did was uh, we, we had a situation room that, in which we were gonna show exactly the nature of, of developments in the planet, but about a third of that would be environmental. environmental. So if the rainforest was going down, we go there, we show that every day, and then we report, we, we track it. You could see the changes every day. Um, see the changes in health qualities, changes here, where things were positive and things were negative. Um, and at the end of the day, um, we then we have, here's the updated news on this. So that was our idea was to embroil that into people's visual sensibilities so they could see it every day and know what's going on. We're going to do it in other areas, human rights, progress here, their education, but environmental was our stuff. So we, we're not set up to, to teach ourselves what we need to know, and that's a, that's a really... Uh, unfortunate situation. Well, that, that does sound like a fascinating uh, way to report the news is actually show people what's happening in real time and, right. and then reporting on it. And because sometimes we'll see these snapshots of things happening, say in the Arctic uh, glaciers melting and so on and so forth, but it's uh, it's not it, it sometimes doesn't it's quite not visible. You know, just, you know, people have said, just to show the species that died today and the cute little beings that may, were no longer with us. That could be, that would have been one of the things. Um, you could, what I'm talking about is the, the, the lack of really visceral communications in America around them are most important issues. And it's not, it's an environment and other things. So, <clears throat> Well, let's, uh, we're going to take a break now. Uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America, KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and uh, we're talking to Jay Levin, and we will be right back uh, in just one minute. Listen to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and uh, we're talking to Jay Levin. Uh, Jay, uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now with uh, kids and, and what, uh, why that's so well, important. Uh, uh, six years ago, I was running a campaign. Uh, I was pub publisher of a website, an environmental website. Um, and it, uh, after a while, it really didn't need me. And I was kind of restless because I had done that a lot. And I wanted, and I, I thought, what's the most important thing in the world I could do to make a difference that it hasn't been that where we could get the next generation pumped up 
I happen to be trained in psychology and human development, and we covered it journalistically. Um, and basically, our, what I learned from all that is that most human dysfunction, including everything we're talking about today, is a lack of skills and, and a mindset that has, I have to advantage myself over you no matter what cost. So we, we come from a paradigm that needs to be changed, and that paradigm is locked into the child development process that we pass from generation to generation. Thus, we pass wars long, and we get we're oblivious to ecological. So I thought, let's go for the next generation, the young kids, let them come out. And uh, there's an education movement called social emotional learning uh, that really trains kids in how to deal with their emotions, their realities. Um, and uh, their relationships, uh, resolve conflicts, uh, be of clear mind. And it, at the end of the day, when these programs are in schools are really, really uh, concentrated and, and rich and comprehensive, uh, you get the most evolved, remarkable kids who automatically are thinking not how I'm gonna advantage myself or pay you, but what we can do creatively and what are the issues. So they become very activists and things in matters that affect life. And of course, the younger generation is very aware the planet may not be there, but they're not necessarily coherent enough to organize co collectively and co-creatively. And so um, these programs, so we decided, we, I looked at that movement uh, and the educators and they didn't know how to talk to the public. Nobody could talk, no parent ever heard of social emotional learning. Or, so we did a bunch of, I, I, I left and I saw this organization, equipourkids.org. And what we do is we support, we provide, we do uh, media and awareness for parents, mostly for parents and now for companies. We work with starting to talk to big companies about getting behind this movement. So we get a generation of kids who will deal with our, the, the problems facing us uh, in, a, in a much healthier way than the past generations have and uh, in a much more coherent, uh, evolved, conscious way. Um, and uh, on our website, equipourkids.org, you can see some of these kids and you can see a lot of videos about schools turning, turning bad schools around and getting these really remarkable kids learning, caring. Uh, uh, they'll make be great in workplaces. So, we just got to evolve the species. And I decided that that's worth doing by helping, by helping these educators get public support for some of the work they're doing. And so now are you work, sorry, are you working with the, the school dis districts here in LA or California in general? Well, he, uh, I, 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 so I was starting to equip our kids. I started, they were, the, other, the other thing that was needed was more grassroots organizing. So I, I looked for the best organizing out there that happened to be in Massachusetts with that brought educators and program providers, community organizations together to do the grassroots talking, talking to school districts, talking to uh, state student, state uh, education departments. And so I, uh, I had them mentor me and we created the California Social Emotional Learning Alliance which is, I no longer have to lead because we have a great executive director, but they're doing the work on the, with LAUSD. When I was doing it, we worked very closely with LAUSD and it was very slow to get them to roll it out. Funding was not there, et cetera. Now, because of grassroots work around the country over the last few years, 
there's some money, there's some real money coming in, and there's a lot of things that have to happen by way of uh, implementing the program, schools learning how to implement them. But there's progress being made, so we're positive about it. And still, we have a big job to do to get the public and corporations behind it. So now we're, in terms arguing, of we're arguing the companies that got behind STEM big time, spent a billion one over the last 10 years, should also get behind social emotional learning because one, they'll get the great greatest workers in human in history, and two, they'll they'll uh, they'll really be making a positive change. And they'll also get more STEM people out of it because a lot of kids are just not mentally present in school because of all the stuff happening. And uh, just the other day, I mean, the gangs and the tensions and the ego stuff and the peer group stuff that goes on. And just the other day, December 7th, uh, Pearl Harbor Day, the Surgeon General of the U.S. declared that there's a U.S. mental health crisis among youth uh, based on all the restrictions and changes from COVID. And it's very serious as every school is dealing with it. And so one of the things he urged was advancement of social emotional learning. So we think it's something everybody in the public should know about. Think of it as emotional intelligence. It's a better set of life skills. Forget the boring name. It's a set of life skills that every parent really wants to have for their child in ways that, that they not train themselves to always train their kids. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Now, are, <clears throat> now does the program <laughs> Uh, trained teachers or are there outside uh, people who well, come the, in? It, 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 uh, some of the programs that, can, that are out there being sold in the schools also train the teachers. But teacher development, staff development is one of the issues that has to be happen. Got to change the school cultures. And uh, on the website, you can see videos of schools that have changed the school cultures and how fantastic it is for them and, and everybody involved. Um, the, uh, but there's a lot, there's work to be done on it and it's a step-by-step -step process. It's not, doesn't happen overnight, but you start on programs, training the teachers, finding the money to do that, uh, changing the curriculum, so we make time for this. And what happens is it changes the way of kids want, the kids show up then they're very present for learning. So, uh, Project develop, project driven learning becomes very, very popular and very easy to do because the kids really want to work together. Project driven learning is a really, a really great way for kids to learn together about things. So that that takes place. And piece by piece, schools figure out the kids are more present, they're more aware. We we can cut back on discipline stuff. We can teach them more sophisticated stuff because they want to hear it. Kids get excited and then they teach the schools have to find the best ways to teach what kids want to learn. Well, I, I think that uh, as somebody who who runs teams of people myself, uh, mm -hmm. project dri driven learning seems important is that a lot of times people have a hard time working with teams. And uh, yeah. It, yeah, it kind of reminds me of a book that uh, I had read a while back, uh, Super Cooperators, which I guess the theory of the book or thesis of the book is that uh, essentially humans evolved and and uh, were more successful as we became super cooperators. Mm -hmm. That that's the the mar the hallmark of a of mm -hmm. an effective society. And so uh, obviously we need to take it to the next level. And if this helps us do that, and of course the environmental problem is just one of many problems that we have to deal with. I think it's the 
the number one problem, um, yeah. this this could help us. Yeah, they're well said. I mean, the hierarchical t- uh, learning that we pass from generation to generation with all the family drama and all the pains that people go through really uh, gets solidified as you ge- generally learn the matrix we're in, which is the matrix of judging yourself and judging others. So you're always thinking, am I one up, one down, et cetera, et cetera, unless you, you evolve. And you carry it into relationships. And it's a skill set to cut, to break that pattern. And the earlier we get it to kids, the easier it is to before they're pro- programmed to be reactive and, and, and negative and self-absorbed. Uh, there's a natural there's a natural collaboration that happens and lovingness that happens and caringness that happens uh, when outside that dynamic and there's 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 a survey that there's a study that was done of kids who were four years old who had a couple of months of this training and they had a control group very similar to them they followed them for 25 years and saw how they performed in life happiness and relationships self self confidence. Uh, financial success, caringness, et cetera, all those good signs. And they well outperformed the, the control group uh, just from having these, have learned these, get, gotten a different way of relating to them early on that became habitual for them. So we all know our bad habits of reaction and stuff. And we got to move the species fast enough to get them out of it before we echo side ourselves or nuke ourselves. You know, we're not, we're not in a good just in a good position <laughs> right now. So uh, where do people uh, go to learn more about this uh, movement and how they, can they support it in their communities? Well, thanks. Uh, our website is equip, E-Q-U-I-P, our O-U-R, kids.org, .org, not .com. And there's a lot of information there about this and ways you can uh, get behind it, especially if your parents and you want to learn more about this. And, and there's also resources you can go to, to other websites. Okay. Well, that sounds great, Jay. I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, enlightening me and the listeners to this important development. And uh, obviously we want our kids to be trained and, and taught in the most effective way possible. So they'll thrive in the future because they Amen. are, they are our future. So uh Thank you for bringing that to the show. And uh, thank you for all the work that you did, uh, particularly with the LA Weekly and the environmental uh, articles that uh, you guys had published. I, I certainly read a number of them back uh, back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. You've been listening to KVC 790, Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Matter, and we'll be back next week. So uh, have a great week, everybody. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968.